We start with some just fairly bold assertions. Firstly, that there is a God. That God is the creator of all things. That the Bible is his book. That Jesus Christ is God's son. And God's purpose, just stated very broadly, is salvation in his son, Jesus Christ. Now, we're not going to be able to prove most of those aspects tonight. Uh, some of them would take a night or a series of nights in themselves. But that's our starting point. Those are the things that we would say about God just on first glance. And we'll look at some of those, other, those aspects as we progress this evening. Firstly, let's begin. The best place to begin is always the beginning. Let's begin in Genesis chapter 1. Our first statement about God is that he is the creator. Of what? Well, in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1 we read, In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and then the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters, and there was a declaration made. God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness, and God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and the evening and the morning were the first day. Now there's the beginning of the creation of God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then this chapter proceeds through the seven days of creation, or the six days specifically, culminating on the sixth day with the creation of man and woman upon the earth. Now, people have interpreted that in all sorts of different ways and tried to extend that time period dramatically. Uh, but when we look at, in a little while, at what the Lord Jesus Christ said in his comment upon creation in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, we'll perhaps see that that certainly wasn't the way the Lord Jesus Christ looked at it. And he saw this creation as happening rapidly and the six days as real days, as we believe. I want to just look quickly at another couple of verses in Psalm 33. And here's a comment about creation from the psalmist. So Psalm 33, verse 6. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. We saw in Genesis chapter 1 that God spoke and things happened. He said, let there be light, and there was light. There was a divine declaration. There was a word of Yahweh, a word of the Lord. And then elements of creation proceeded from those divine declarations as we find them all through Genesis chapter 1. And now when we get to the Psalms, here is the psalmist saying uh, what we see in Genesis 1, by the word of the Lord were the heavens made. And he expands on that in verse 9, for he spake and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. Now that's not the language of long drawn out ages of time. That's the language of alacrity of quickness, of action. 
of the words spoken and things being done quickly in response to that. That's the way scripture presents it. It never presents it in any other way. Look at what the Apostle Paul says about creation. If we go to Romans chapter 1, first of all, he puts, he puts the metal on his readers and virtually says to them, when you look around you at the things of creation, that takes away from you any excuse from rejecting the existence of God. So in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, here's the words of the Apostle Paul. For the invisible things of him, of God, from the creation of the world are clearly seen. It was clear to the Apostle Paul when he looked around at the creation of the world and all the things of nature about him that there was a brilliant intelligence, a divine mind and divine action which had taken place to put those things together. The invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. There's majesty in what we see about us. There is an enormity of power evident in those things that have been created. And that makes man, as he goes on, so that they, meaning everyone, who's got their eyes open and their mind alert, they are without excuse to look around us at the things of creation and deny God is to make ourselves without excuse. That's the Apostle Paul's statement. Now, we've got to go back a bit, not forward. Acts chapter 17 that we read most of today. We'll just look at one verse in particular. Paul had said in verse 23, as I passed by through the city of Athens, he said to the wise men of Athens on Mars Hill, as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription. Amongst all of the altars, with all of their names and titles and descriptions of what they were, I found this one, a unique inscription, to the unknown God. Here they were covering all their bases, weren't they? We've got all these others, we've got all these idols, all these various depictions of God, and in case we missed out somewhere, here is an inscription to the unknown God. Well, says the Apostle Paul, he's not entirely unknown, and I want to talk to you about him. Whom therefore you ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. God that made the world and all things therein. There's his first declaration to the Athenians, to the brilliant men of that city, about this God that they didn't know, the unknown God. Well, the first thing you need to understand, says Paul, he made the world and all things therein. Moreover, he is Lord of heaven and of earth. And if that is so... You can't stick him, you can't build a little box on the earth and think that you're going to tuck God away in a box called a temple made with hands. He's the Lord of the heaven and the earth. He doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. 
That's not where you put God. He rules over all. He sits supreme in the heavens. He's made the earth and mankind and all things. That's the God that you're ignorantly worshipping. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ, in a discussion with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the rulers of the Jews, in Matthew chapter 19, let's just go back there, he made some comments because of the subject that they were talking about, which was divorce. The Pharisees, it was in verse 3 of Matthew chapter 19, who came to Jesus, tempting him and saying unto him, is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? Well, we're just going to pass over that. We just want to concentrate on what the Lord said in the next couple of verses. He answered and said unto them, and he answered pretty aggressively and in a pretty challenging way because he says, Have ye not read? He's saying that to the scholars of the law, to people who had read. He says, well, did you read this? That he which made them at the beginning made them male and female. He's quoting from Genesis, a couple of places in Genesis, in fact. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. So let's keep our place here in Matthew 19 and see if we can juggle some pages and go back to Genesis chapter 1. And so the Lord goes right back to the beginning, to creation and to the formation of man and woman and for the purpose of that, before he's even going to begin to answer that question. He answered and said, Haven't you read that he which made them when? At the beginning. We saw that, didn't we? Remember in chapter 1 and verse 1. There's the beginning. And in that beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And that's not squillions of years ago, according to the Lord Jesus Christ's understanding, because he then says, haven't you read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? When we turn the page of Genesis chapter 1 and to verse 27, on the sixth day of creation, Christ is alluding to this verse. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he, he them, created he him, I should say, Male and female created he them. In the beginning, he made them male and female. Chapter 1, verse 1. Chapter 1, verse 27. Just weaves that together. And then he says, goes on, And said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. He's still in the record of creation, but now he's over in chapter 2 and at verse 24, which reads, Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. So without going into the whole realm of what the Lord Jesus Christ is going to be getting at, his understanding of creation from Genesis 1 and 2 is that Genesis 1 and 2 are a continuum 
their one record and that the creation of in the beginning is linked with verse 27 of chapter 1, the work of the sixth day. And verse 24, likewise, is part of the work of the sixth day. So that's the Lord Jesus Christ and his understanding of creation. It's quite confronting to those who have a different view. So that's our starting point. God is the creator. We've sort of skipped over that little reference. You can see it there, Proverbs chapter 20, verse 12. The hearing ear and the seeing eye, which mine doesn't see as well as it could, but the Lord hath made even both of them. All the functions of humanity, of our bodies, God is responsible for. He's created them and made them work. Just quite amazing. Well, God is the author of the Bible. Who is the God of the Bible? Well, the Bible itself is his work. It's a unique library of 66 books. There are 39 in the Old Testament. There's 27 in the New Testament. It was written over an extended period of time, uh, 1,600 years approximately. And the authors wrote in different places, in Israel, over in Babylon, there was Daniel writing his prophecy, and in different cities of the Roman Empire, as we look at the work of the Apostle Paul in particular, and all of his writings in different places. There's a wide variety of authors. Some are rich, some are poor. Some are kings, some are servants. Some are scholars and some are what we might term lowly farm workers. A whole range of people wrote that book. But there was nonetheless one divine author and he, in a way which we don't understand and I won't even attempt to explain it because I don't know entirely how it worked. But the mind of God influenced the mind of those men so that they were able to write each with their own distinctive writing style and their own context of history and place and yet God was able to impinge upon that and make that his work, his book. Quite an astonishing thing. And yet that's what scripture tells us was the process as far as we are able with our limited minds to understand it. So if we go over to Second of Peter chapter 1, here's what the Apostle Peter had to say about that process. And he's quite specific about it. We might love to know in, in its entirety how it really worked. Wouldn't that be interesting to know that? And perhaps when the Lord Jesus Christ returns... And in his mercy, in the mercy of God, we find a place in that wonderful kingdom bearing divine nature. Then we might then have some glimmer of understanding or maybe even some, hopefully some depth of understanding of how that actually worked. But here's what Peter tells us in 2 Peter chapter 1 and at verse 19. We have also, he says, a more sure word of prophecy... Whereunto ye do well that ye take heed, as unto a light that shines in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts, knowing this first, 
Understand this, says the Apostle, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. Or as that word could be better understood in the more modern translations, I'm reading from the authorised version of 1611, no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private origination. It came not from the prophet's own prompting or understanding. It wasn't just his thoughts. For, verse 21, the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man. It wasn't that Daniel or Isaiah or Jeremiah just sat down and said, well, I'm going to write some stuff today and it'll be entirely their own work. That's not how it works, says Peter. Holy men of God, those holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit of God, by the power of God. And that word moved has the sense of borne along. The Apostle Paul uses it in uh, the latter chapters of Acts about being on board the ship and he said, we let her drive and the ship was borne along. And in some similar fashion that we really can't comprehend, so these men sat down to write and to speak and they were impelled along in their writing by the Holy Spirit, the power of Almighty God. Isn't that a remarkable thing? To what end then? What was the point of it all? Why did God place this book before us? This quite extensive record. Well, let's go back to Second of Timothy, chapter 3. Here's the words of the Apostle Paul. Second of Timothy, chapter 3. And verse 16. We might start from verse 14 because it's good to just get the flow of thought of the Apostle Paul as he writes to Timothy. And he says, Timothy, continue. Continue thou, Timothy, in the things which you've learned and have been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them. And that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which have the capacity, this book, the holy scriptures, to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God, that same inspiration that the apostle Peter spoke of. And it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works and wise unto salvation, as he's already said in verse 15, that salvation available through faith in Christ Jesus. So there's a wonderful purpose involved in this book, which we have in our hands tonight. It's to make us wise to the, brilliant, to the wonderful salvation available in Christ and it's, it opens up to us prophecy, doctrine, correction, instruction. There's another verse which we might just briefly pause at in Romans chapter 15.
And again, it's the Apostle Paul. He talks to the members of the Roman Christian group. In verse 4, Whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. Hope in that salvation wrought in the Lord Jesus Christ that he spoke of later to young Timothy. Whatsoever things were written aforetime, all of the things that we see in all the ancient record of Scripture, they were written that we might learn. And through patience and comfort of the Scriptures, as we glean that record or glean from it every day, we might finally develop a powerful hope in the salvation that God offers to us. So there is God, the author, writing through individuals, through the power of divine inspiration, that he might tell us what he's all about and what his plan is for us as men and women upon the earth. Well, what does Scripture tell us about God's nature? I'm using that in a fairly broad sense. Maybe it's a crude term to use to speak about Almighty God. But what are a few things that we can glean about God as we traverse through Scripture? Well, let's look firstly at Isaiah chapter 45. God declares himself to be a singular God. He says of himself that he is the only God, that there is no other. He's not a multitude of gods. He's not many gods in one God. He is one God alone. So in Isaiah 45, and in verse 5, we read this. Here is what God says of himself through the prophet Isaiah. I am the Lord and there is none else. There is no God beside me. Sad to say it, but all those people all over the earth today and in all the ages of human history who actually believed in some other God than the God of the Hebrew Bible and the Christian Bible, they're just wrong. He just says, there is no God beside me. I girded thee, though thou hast not known me, that they may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord and there is none else. I form the light and create darkness. Back to Genesis 1 again. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. Beside me there is none else. There is no other God. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 6, in the last of the five books of Moses, the Pentateuch as it's called, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, here clearly is the Jewish understanding, an understanding which doesn't change and shouldn't change, even as we move into the New Testament. Hear, O Israel, Deuteronomy 6 and verse 4, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and all thy soul and all thy mind. 
more by might, I should say. The Lord our God is one Lord. There are no other gods beside me. Look at what the Lord Jesus Christ said. Some think that he's part of the Godhead. Well, that's just not so. We go to John chapter 17, and we read in John 17 and verse 3, and here is the, one of the final great prayers of the Lord Jesus Christ as the time of his crucifixion is drawing near. And we read that Jesus, in verse 1, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee. As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal. Here's the pathway to life eternal, that they, those who are given to Christ by the Father, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. So there is the Father, and he's the only true God. And Jesus Christ stands apart and separate from him. Not part of that Godhead. There is only one God. We turn back one page, in fact, in the record of John's Gospel, John 14, verse 28. At the end of that verse, the Lord Jesus Christ says, John 14, 28, I go unto the Father, for my Father is greater than I. Let's go further back in John's Gospel. We could go to a number of places in the New Testament, but we're here, so let's stay in John's Gospel. Go back to John chapter 5 and see how the Lord spoke of his Father. So in John 5 verse 19, he says, Very, verily I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself, nor did he want to. But what he seeth the Father do. For what things soever he, that is the Father, doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. For the Father loves the Son, and shows him all things that himself doeth, and he will show him greater works than these, that ye may marvel. And so he says in effect, I don't initiate anything of myself. I look at what the Father is doing. And because the Father loves the Son and his work of salvation is directed through him, he shows the Son the principles by which he acts. He demonstrates to the Son the things that he is doing. And Christ says, I look at that and I observe that and I learn from that and I follow that. That's my only motivation. That's the way I work. The Father worketh hitherto, and I work. I do the same things. And he says, moreover, in verse 30, 
as if to make it more clear. I can of my own self do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not mine own will, but the will of the Father which hath sent me. Mine own will? The will of the Father. So there's two wills at work here. But the Lord Jesus Christ says, I always subordinate what I might want to do to the will of the Father so that the outworking of his purpose might be done in him. So there are some aspects of our God. There's only one God. His Son is the Lord Jesus Christ. He directs the Son and shows him how he ought to act in the furtherance of the purpose of God in the Son. Here's another term which I put in inverted commas, God's character. It almost seems crude for mere man to talk about God's character. But he does reveal his ways and his being and his thinking to us. It's a great blessing that he does so. Not only reveals it in specific terms, but he reveals it in the way he does things, in the outworking of things in his purpose. So let's go back to Exodus chapter 33, where Moses was that great man who was blessed of God and was the leader of God's people as he took them out of Egypt into the promised land. A huge task, a massive task this man had. And he often just felt his own inadequacy, as you might imagine. He just did not feel equal to that great work which he had to do. And he wanted to know more about the God that he worshipped and served. He wanted to be sure that God was with him all the way and that God would send from heaven the mighty angel who sat in the presence of God called the angel of his presence in Isaiah chapter 63. He wanted to know that that great angel, God's specific representative to Israel, would go with him along that way. And he wanted moreover to know more about God himself. There were things that he did know and had gleaned, doubtless, along the way from his age of maturity. But he wanted to know more. So he says in verse 13 of Exodus chapter 33, Now therefore I pray thee, if I found grace in thy sight, show me now thy way, that I may know thee, that I might find grace in thy sight and consider that this nation is thy people. And he said, moreover, Moses, my presence shall go with thee and I will give thee rest. I will help you along the way and the angel of my presence will be there. And Moses says, moreover, in verse 18, I beseech thee, show me thy glory as well. Show me now thy way and show me your glory. 
Open yourself up to me, almighty God, and show me what you are like, what your person really is, that I can understand as I strive to lead this people. And as, as I try to explain to them the character and nature of the God who is going before us to take us into the land promised to us as part of the unfolding of the purpose of God. And so we read in verse 4 of the next chapter, Exodus 34, that he, that is Moses, hewed two tables of stone like unto the first, which had been destroyed. And Moses rose up early in the morning and went up unto Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand those two tables of stone. This was the seventh and the last time that Moses went up into the mount, into the presence, as it were, of God himself. And verse 5, amazing things happened. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there. Now this is not God himself because no man can be in the presence of God, no human. It was that mighty angel who bore the name of the Lord or the name Yahweh the angel of God's presence. That was who was stood before him and proclaimed the name of the Lord, the name being the character, the reality of God, what he was like, what Moses could rely on as he went on his way. And the angel proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, Yahweh, Yahweh Ael, the mighty God. Here is what I'm like, Moses. Merciful and gracious. Long-suffering. Abundant in goodness and truth. Keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and to the fourth generation. So he declares himself. He is merciful. He manifests compassion and tenderness to his people. And that was clear to Moses from the way God operated with the nation. Let's turn over to Psalm 103. Keep our place there in Exodus. And the psalmist just talks about that aspect. And he reiterates some of those terms from out of Exodus 34. The Lord is merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger. He's plenteous in mercy. If it was the reverse, we'd be in a terrible strait. But no, he's slow to anger and he's plenteous. He's abundant in mercy. He will not always chide, neither will he keep his anger forever. He's not dealt with us after our sins. Or in other words... He hasn't dealt with us the way we deserve really to be dealt with on account of our sins. He hasn't rewarded us 
according to our iniquities. Look out if he did. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. He's just merciful beyond our understanding and won't punish us according to our sin and our iniquity if only we acknowledge him toward them that fear him, that hold him in reverence and that love him. Like a mother or father will forgive much for their children when they know that their children truly love them. As far as the east is from the west, he says. I was almost going to say as far as the east from the west, but it would have to be the east and the west, sort of that way, isn't it? The east is behind me. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. So we've got a wonderful God who is merciful, who is long-suffering, who is gracious. And the record of Exodus 34 now tells us that he's abundant in goodness and truth. And there's two Hebrew words, and I don't pretend to know Hebrew, I don't. But these are two words which are twinned, which are paired, found together, over and over and over again through the Old Testament record, mostly written in Hebrew. The Chesed has the sense of a steadfast love, of a faithfulness. And that's the manner in which God deals with men and women. But he's also abundant in truth. And truth is perhaps a little bit of a sterner word. That word emeth, it has the sense of justice. And again, we'll keep our place there. We'll go over to Romans chapter 11 and see what the Apostle Paul says about our Lord, our God. Romans 11, verse 22. Well, he says to the Romans, Behold therefore the goodness and severity of God. It's almost like that paired term. Chesed and Emeth. Steadfast love and faithfulness, but severity, the exercise of justice when needed. On them which fell, severity, but toward thee, goodness. So God can exercise judgment and justice as he can exercise steadfast love and faithfulness. It depends on our response to him. And so we go back there and the record continues on that he keeps mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. So he's forgiving. We won't go to that record in Matthew chapter 18 which speaks about forgiveness. When he's asked, I think, by Peter, how often should I forgive my brother till seven times? And Jesus says in response... Till 70 times 7. In other words, you just multiply and multiply and multiply. You forgive him an unlimited amount of times if he seeks that forgiveness. And that's the measure of forgiveness 
that we want and we need from Almighty God. When we stand before our Lord of the judgment, we will want that 70 times 7 forgiveness, won't we? But there is justice and judgment as well. And the rest of verse 7 here in Exodus 34 says, He'll by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children under the third and the fourth generation. Now, what's that really mean? Because we might be a little bit hesitant about that. Because we know from Scripture broadly that children and grandchildren are not punished for the sins of the father. And if we go to the record of Deuteronomy chapter 5, I think it is, yeah, Deuteronomy 5, we'll see that I think Deuteronomy just clarifies that a little for us. Deuteronomy 5, verse 9. Thou shalt not bow down thyself unto them, nor serve them, that is any graven image, for I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity, and here's the words which remind us of Exodus 34, verse 7, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children under the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. In other words, if that iniquity, if that rejection of divine principle goes on and on from father to son to son's son, then so will the judgment of God fall likewise. That, I think, is the sense of Exodus 34 and verse 17, or verse 7. What else can we say about God? Many things. But let's just look at two or three. We'll go over to the New Testament now. First of John, the first epistle of John, and chapter 4, and see how he describes God and what God expects from us on account of that. So he says in 1st of John chapter 4 and at verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. There is again one of those great characteristics of Almighty God. Who is the God of the Bible? He's a God of love. In this was manifested the love of God toward us because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him and gave him in dreadful sacrifice for us. Here in his love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if that's the measure of how God loves us, we ought also to love one another in the same fashion. So God is love and wants us, therefore, to show love to each other, to reflect that love of God. Back a few pages to First of Peter chapter 1, because... I've made a note there. God is holy and wants us to be that way too. First of Peter chapter 1 and at verse 15. But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. 
There's another one of those 1611 uh, words of the authorised version. It means in behaviour, in the way we behave. Because it is written, quoting from Leviticus chapter 11, be ye holy, for I am holy. And the Apostle Paul in Hebrews, I don't have a note of this, talks about holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. That's how serious it is. He wants holiness, and absent that, we're finished. So when Peter says, quotes, Be ye holy, for I am holy, be holy in all manner of behaviour, this is serious. God is holy, and he wants us to be holy too. And finally in John chapter 1, very well-known verse. John chapter 1, verse 14. Jesus, as God's son, reflected his father's characteristics. Well, so he did. The word, that which was the expression of the mind and thinking of God, was made flesh in the Lord Jesus Christ. And dwelt among us, says John, and we beheld his glory as we looked at the Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, we beheld his glory. It was the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. It was a glory which could only have come from one who was really the Son of God. It was full of grace and truth. That was the Lord Jesus Christ. So those characteristics that we read about back in Exodus 34, which of course we're meant to take as our template of how we ought to live and think and be, John tells us that was Christ. And we beheld a glory that was never matched by any other. It was a glory like the only begotten of the Father and it was full of grace and truth. We might sometimes get on the edges of that. We might sometimes manifest that somewhat. He was full of it, full of grace and truth, was the Lord Jesus Christ, reflecting his wonderful Father. So what was then the purpose of God? We can read about that all through Scripture. We just picked out a few verses. Back in Numbers 14, verse 21... Numbers 14 is where Israel sets off from Sinai and off they go through the wilderness heading for the promised land. But the first generation don't make it. And Numbers chapter 14, I was going to call it a depressing chapter. Maybe better to say it's a disappointing chapter. It's a chapter which expresses God's absolute disappointment in the failure of his people and their rebellion against him despite all the evidences of his power and goodness that they'd seen. Yet still they turned against him. Until finally we read in verse 20, And the Lord said, I have pardoned according to my word, he doesn't mean he set aside punishment altogether. 
What he means there, I believe, is I've pardoned. In other words, I won't destroy you all right now. I've pardoned according to my my word. But as truly as I live, as true and real as the existence of God himself, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. That generation would die. I've pardoned you, he says. I won't take you out of existence right now. But as for you, he says in verse 32, your carcasses will fall in the wilderness. Your children will wander in the wilderness 40 years and bear your whoredoms until your carcasses be wasted in the wilderness. They wouldn't die all at once right then. But as the days and the weeks and the months and the years rolled on, one by one, group by group, family by family, their lives would end and they'd be buried there in the sands of the desert with the promised land far ahead in the distance. They missed out. God says, doesn't matter that you missed out in one sense, as truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. Doesn't depend upon them, doesn't depend on me or any of us. Any of our failures won't stop that. The earth, this earth, will be filled with divine glory in due time. And God expresses what he wants for all of us. Here's another verse which we all should be able to quote verbatim. John chapter 3. One of the most well-known verses in the Bible. We read in verse 14 of this chapter that as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up as he would be in crucifixion in Jerusalem some time hence. That whosoever, not a Jew necessarily, whosoever, Jew or Gentile, believeth in him should not perish but have, ever, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever, there's that word again, believeth in him, should not perish, but have everlasting life. God so loved the world. Let's not forget that everyone on this planet in a broad sense, are the children of God. They may not all be called to sp- specifically into his family in Christ, but they are all nonetheless descendants of that first pair that God created. In Matthew chapter 1, Here again is one of those great statements of purpose from Almighty God. In verse 20, the angel appears to Joseph, worried about the obvious pregnancy of Mary. 
and verse 20 says that while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife. Nothing illicit has taken place at all. You don't need to be afraid about that. That which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. It's not shameful, it's wonderful. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus. And the word Jesus, or the name Jesus, means God saves, or the salvation of God. For he shall save his people from their sins. And there is probably that first statement of purpose in respect of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ in the New Testament. His purpose to save his people from their sins. And that's God's purpose. God so loved the world that he would give this son, this wonderful son, on behalf of all who might come to God through him. What a wonderful thing. In 2 Peter chapter 3, again we have the mind of God revealed to us, or his thinking in relation to his people upon the earth. Verse 9 of 2 Peter chapter 3. Here is God revealed to us. The Lord is not slack concerning his promises as some men count slackness. But he's long-suffering to usward. He's patient to all humanity because he's not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. That's what God really wants. Now he knows that's not going to happen, but he's very patient in holding forth that similar welcome that he did at the time of the flood to the generation of that day, that they might come into the ark, that we might come into the ark of salvation in Christ. He's long-suffering. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now let's finish in... That chapter that we read, Acts chapter 17. Here's the apostle before the intelligentsia of his day. The Areopagites. Those who stood on Mars Hill and debated. The intellectuals, so clever. Debated about anything and everything. And so they gave Paul a hearing. And he tried to present the gospel message. And he finishes off his speech to them this way. From verse 28 of Acts 17. For in him, this unknown God that he's explaining to them, in him we live and move and have our being, as certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone graven by art and man's device. If we're the offspring of God, how could that be? In the times of this ignorance that's been shown by all the world, God winked at. He let that go for a time. But now he commands all men everywhere to repent. Why? Because he's appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, the Lord Jesus Christ, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men 
in that he hath raised him from the dead. What was their response to that appeal to accept an invite from God himself? Who is the God of the Bible? He's the one who holds forth this invitation to all mankind. He's the one who gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth on him should not perish. He's the one who doesn't want all men to perish but that rather all men should come to repentance. And he holds out this question to them in in the words of the Apostle Paul. Some mocked. Others said, we'll hear you again. We'll listen to you another day about this stuff. And so he departed. Let's not be so foolish. We have the invitation of the God of the Bible, the almighty creator, the author of the word of God, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, to accept his offer of salvation. Let's not dismiss that offer. Let's take it up and follow through.